Hello and welcome to the Verity Podcast for Saturday, November 11th, 2023. The only podcast that separates the facts from the narrative spins. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Israeli forces advance on Gaza City. Donald Trump's trial date delay request is rejected in his classified documents case. Russia masses 40,000 troops in preparation for a renewed Donetsk assault. Germany reportedly aspires to become Europe's military backbone. The leaders of Russia, Pakistan, Iran, and Turkey convene in Central Asia. Marjorie Taylor Greene moves to impeach the U.S. Homeland Security chief. Fentanyl-laced envelopes are sent to U.S. election officials in multiple states. An industrial robot kills a worker in South Korea. Deforestation in Brazil's Amazon dips to a five-year low. And U.S. surgeons perform the world's first eye transplant. Israeli forces advance in Gaza City. And here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC, BBC News, CNN, Jerusalem Post, AA, and Al Jazeera. Israeli forces have continued to advance in and around Gaza City, with local reports indicating intense Israeli bombardment and the presence of military vehicles in the vicinity of several hospitals. Israeli forces are reported to be operating in the vicinity of Al-Shifa Hospital, Al-Quds Hospital, Al-Rantisi Pediatric Hospital, and the Indonesian Hospital. Israeli troops are reportedly using loudspeakers to order civilians to flee south. Reports from Al-Shifa Hospital, the largest in Gaza City, indicate that a missile or shell hit the hospital's courtyard, killing at least one. In the West Bank, Israeli forces launched a raid into the Jenin refugee camp to thwart terrorist infrastructure and killed at least 14 Palestinians. Israeli forces also demolished the home of a man who allegedly killed an off-duty Israeli soldier in a ramming attack. Since October 7th, at least 176 Palestinians have been killed in the West Bank and thousands injured. Meanwhile, Hezbollah, an Iran-backed political party and armed group, said that Israel killed seven of its fighters but did not specify where. On Thursday, U.S. President Joe Biden again ruled out the possibility of a ceasefire and stated that the U.S. was still working on freeing hostages, saying, quote, we are not going to stop until we get them out. As of Friday, the Hamas-run Gaza Health Ministry said at least 11,078 people had been killed and 27,490 injured in Israeli bombardment since October 7th when Hamas killed at least 1,400 people and abducted about 240 people in the deadliest attack ever against Israel. Eric, thank you for the facts on our first story and for the update in the situation in the Middle East. We're going to start our first round of narrative spins with a pro-Israel narrative provided by the Times of Israel. After Hamas's heinous attack on Israel, Tel Aviv has a right and a duty to dismantle Hamas's terrorist leadership as an extremist threat to Israel itself. However, a short, temporary humanitarian pause may be possible in the condition that it comes with the release of Israeli hostages. Middle East Eye gives us a pro-Palestine narrative. Living under a total blockade and unrelenting Israeli airstrikes, figures show that one Palestinian child is dying every 15 minutes. Indeed, Israel is in the process of systematically attacking hospitals in Gaza City. A humanitarian ceasefire must be established immediately so much needed aid can enter the territory. And from time to time, we get statistics-based nerd narratives from our friends at the Metaculous Prediction community 
They've got an opinion on this story, and they think that there's a 99% chance that there will be an Israel-Hezbollah war by 2030. The judge denies Trump's bid to postpone his documents trial date, but allows other extensions. Here are the facts as agreed upon by ABC News, Associated Press, NBC, and Daily Wire. Judge Eileen Cannon, the federal judge presiding over former President Donald Trump's classified documents case, rejected on Friday Trump's request to postpone the May start date of the trial. Cannon called the request to push back the trial by Trump's lawyers premature. However, she pushed back several deadlines for filing and responding to pretrial motions, signaling she may be willing to extend the trial date at a scheduling conference in March. Last month, Cannon paused pretrial litigation while mulling Trump's request to adjust the deadlines, and she has also acknowledged the defense's argument that due process requires more time for the defendants to review, quote, an unusually high volume of unclassified and classified discovery. She also noted Trump's hectic schedule, as he is scheduled to face a federal trial in Washington, D.C. on March 4th of 2024 for his role surrounding the events of the 2020 election. He is also dealing with state charges in Georgia and New York over his actions in 2020 and hush money paid to Stormy Daniels in 2016. Trump's campaign spokesman Stephen Chung spoke favorably of Judge Cannon's ruling and said that Trump's team looks forward to the conference set by Judge Cannon for next March, where future scheduling matters, including a potential trial date, will be discussed. He also slammed the Biden administration and special counsel Jack Smith for their allegedly corrupt motives. Trump is being charged for mishandling classified documents after leaving office, and he, alongside two Mar-a-Lago employees, has pleaded not guilty to all 40 charges. The trial is set for May 20th in Fort Pierce, Florida. Adam, thank you for laying out the facts. We begin our round of spins with an anti-Trump narrative coming from MSNBC. Donald Trump is desperate to delay all of his criminal trials until after the 2024 election as part of a desperate effort to retake power and pardon himself for his crimes. However, even a Trump-appointed judge like Eileen Cannon cannot do such a favor for Trump, at least not yet. Cannon may still rule in Trump's favor and circumvent the spirit of justice, but at least, at the moment, the extension request has been denied. Regardless, justice will prevail and Trump will ultimately have to answer for all of his crimes. And that's going to be countered with a pro-Trump narrative provided by the conservative brief. The left-wing Biden propaganda media machine continues to run smear campaigns about Judge Eileen Cannon and former President Donald Trump as Jack Smith's corrupt prosecution continues to be derailed. Everyone knows that the Washington establishment and its Democratic allies at the state level will do whatever it can to imprison and punish Donald Trump. The left knows it can't beat him cleanly at the ballot box and is using, quote, lawfare to tie Trump down. Judge Cannon is making sound and fair rulings, and any decision that isn't rigged against Trump will be blasted by the media. The Metaculous Prediction Community Gives us a nerd narrative. They say there's a 50% chance that Donald Trump's federal documents case will begin by August of 2024. In our next story, Russia amasses 40,000 troops in preparation for a Donetsk assault. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Newsweek, The Telegraph, the Institute for the Study of War, Ukraine Forum, Ukranska Pravda. 
After deploying thousands of men alongside tanks and armored vehicles into a fresh Russian assault in the eastern region of Donetsk last month, Russia has reportedly amassed 40,000 troops around the city of Avdivka in preparation for a renewed push to take the city, Ukrainian military officials said on Thursday. Anton Kotsukhan, a spokesman for Ukraine's 110th Separate Mechanized Brigade, said, quote, they are building up reserves. They've brought in about 40,000 men here along with ammunition of all calibers. We see no sign of the Russians abandoning plans to encircle Advivka. According to analysis from the Institute for the Study of War, or ISW, a U.S.-affiliated military think tank that tracks battlefield progress in the war, Russia has made gains in positions near Avdivka in recent days and has surrounded the city from three sides. It cited reports from a Russian military blogger that claimed Russian forces now hold positions within 500 meters, or 1,640 feet, of Avdivka itself. On Friday, Ukraine's general staff reported that its forces are, quote, firmly holding their defenses in Avdivka. It added that Ukraine also fended off Russian attacks in Bakhmut, Kupiansk, Lyman, and Marinka elsewhere in the Donetsk region, as well as further attacks in the regions of Chernihiv, Kherson, Kharkiv, and Luhansk, in addition to Sumy, Mykolaiv, and Zaporizhia. Ukraine's general staff added that in the last 24 hours, Russia launched 26 airstrikes and 62 attacks involving multiple rocket launch systems. Meanwhile, in Ukrainian attacks, Kyiv's defense intelligence branch said it destroyed a Russian landing vessel off the coast of Crimea. Russia's defense ministry did not acknowledge the attack, but said it shot down a number of Ukrainian drones over Crimea in addition to the mainland Russian regions of Tula, Oryol, and Kursk. Elsewhere, after Ukraine claimed responsibility for a car bomb that killed a pro-Russia lawmaker in the Luhansk region earlier in the week, a further car bomb was reported in the Russian-held city of Mariupol on Friday. The attack targeted a Russian police officer whose condition remains unknown. Petro Andriyushchenko, a Ukrainian official, said it was a, quote, gift to celebrate police day in Russia. Eric, thank you for the facts and for the update on the situation in Ukraine. We're going to start our spins on this story with a pro-Ukraine narrative provided by Ukraine Forum. Russia has pounded Avdivka for a month, but all they have achieved is the losses of thousands of men and equipment. Ukraine's defense forces continue to hold the line and will fight every meter of territory. Following that with a pro-Russian narrative coming from TASS. Ukraine's counteroffensive has ground to a halt, and now Russia is launching renewed offensive operations. Meanwhile, Western support for Ukraine is drying up. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky needs to see the writing on the wall and realize that he cannot defeat Russia militarily. And meanwhile, the nerds think that there's a 1% chance that there will be a bilateral ceasefire or peace agreement in the Russo-Ukraine conflict before 2024. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. No Christmas ceasefire? They used to do Christmas ceasefires like in other wars, back in the good old day wars, you know? Times have changed. Back in them WW1, WW2s. They're just fighting through the holidays. It's a 24-7 world now, Adam. Those, yeah. those days of rolling in the sidewalks during the war at 9 p.m. every day, just they're over. Yeah, they clock out at the end of the day, go home and, you know, take care of the wife and kids and clock back into the war. Yeah, <laughs> you're right. Actually, the good guys and bad guys, you know, they have they shared the same time clock. Morning, George. Morning, Frank. Yeah. After, yeah see, right. See, yeah. What are you doing for lunch today? Oh, I don't know. You know, wait, let's go ahead that new sandwich. Button. And they clock out for lunch, you know, after shooting each other. And they go right. eat lunch together. And they go, that clock back. In. Have a good day at the war. Had a good day at the war. <laughs> <laughs> 
Germany reportedly aspires to become Europe's military backbone. Here are the facts as agreed upon by DW.com, Reuters, AOL, Politico, Yahoo Finance, and Today. Germany has released new defense policy guidelines for the first time in over a decade to strengthen its military capabilities and make it the central element of European defense in light of the Russo-Ukraine war. The Federal Armed Forces, or Bundeswehr, must become the backbone of deterrence and collective defense in Europe, German Defense Minister Boris Pistorius said as he presented the 19-page document on Thursday. This comes after Berlin unveiled a 100 billion euro or 107 billion dollars special defense fund last year to boost its military as part of Chancellor Olaf Scholz's military defense policy shift and reach the NATO threshold of spending at least 2% of the GDP on defense from 2024. Furthermore, Germany's first defense doctrine since 2011 highlights Russia as quote the greatest threat to peace and security in the Euro-Atlantic area, and adds that Berlin must become, quote, war-ready and focus on national and NATO defense rather than foreign missions. With regard to assuming greater responsibility amid the Russo-Ukraine war that he claims has altered the Bundeswehr's role, Pistorius referred to Berlin's commitment to permanently deploy Germany's first combat brigade in Lithuania. Meanwhile, Schultz said on Friday his government would adjust the national defense budget in such a way that the military gets the resources it needs, even after the special funds run out, citing a joint fighter jet project with France and Spain as examples of European defense cooperation. Adam, thank you for those facts. The first spin is a pro-establishment narrative coming from International Politic Quarterly. In light of Russia's ongoing war against Ukraine, it was high time that Germany committed itself to a leadership role within NATO as part of the Zeitenwend. Europe's NATO allies must no longer rely on the U.S. for the continent's defense, while Germany must ensure that it permanently meets the 2% GDP target for defense spending. Furthermore, Berlin must present a timetable to deploy a permanent combat-ready brigade to Lithuania as quickly as possible. Berlin has set the right course. Now it has to deliver. And Boston Review is going to follow that up with an establishment critical narrative. With the new guidelines on so-called defense policy, the militarization of Germany as part of the NATO war alliance is in full swing. The notion that Germany must become fit for war raises uncomfortable associations with the country's darkest times, with recent events proving yet again that it's not Russia, but NATO and the U.S. that pose a threat to peace worldwide. Under the pretext of defending Europe, Berlin is making a dramatic turn to put its own geostrategic and economic interests first, which must be carefully analyzed within the context of an evolving multipolar war. The nerds from Attacula say there's a 7% chance for war between Russia and one or more NATO countries, but not the U.S. by the year 2035. Leaders of Russia, Pakistan, Turkey, and Iran visit Central Asia. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, France 24, Dawn, Daily Sabah, Nikkei Asia, and Russia Islamic World. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, Iran's President Ibrahim Raisi, and Pakistani Prime Minister Anwar Ukhak Kakar traveled to Uzbekistan on Thursday for the Regional Economic Cooperation Organization, or ECO Summit while Russia's Vladimir Putin met with his Kazakh counterpart, Kassam Jomart Tokayev, in Astana. 
Erdogan and Raisi spoke against Israel and the West at the summit in Tashkent, criticizing them over the Israel-Hamas war and highlighting their alleged hypocrisy and crimes in Gaza. The Turkish leader further urged Muslim countries to defend the Palestinian cause. Though the eco-agenda was expected to focus on trade, humanitarian cooperation, and transport in the landlocked region that looks to gain access to the sea via Pakistan, Iran and Turkey brought the conflict in Gaza to the table. This comes as they had reportedly talked separately on the sidelines of the summit about the humanitarian crisis stemming from Israeli attacks on Gaza, steps to be taken for a solution, as well as Turkish-Iranian relations and regional issues. Meanwhile, in Kazakhstan, Putin and Tokayev held talks and signed a joint statement to mark the 10th anniversary of their Treaty on Good Neighborly Relations and Alliance in the 21st century. The Kremlin denied that the issue of Kazakh-French relations was on the agenda. Moscow has seen its clout in Central Asia decline despite long-established political and security ties since the outbreak of the Ukraine war, with Turkey and France ramping up their diplomatic efforts to expand their influence. China has also made economic advances in the region with its Belt and Road Initiative. Eric, thank you very much for laying out the facts on that story. We've got a pro-establishment narrative here provided by New York Post. The Muslim world should be very cautious before it decides to partner with Russia and China instead of its current Western allies. Russia has a history of killing and torturing so-called suspected Islamic terrorists since at least the Chechen Wars of the 1990s, and China's treatment of the Muslim Uyghurs in the Zhejiang province is despicable. Just because these two dictatorships haven't condemned Hamas doesn't mean they're looking to accept Islam in their respective societies. Daily Sabah gives us an establishment critical narrative. The West has no leg to stand on concerning how or with whom the Muslim world conducts its business. The global rules-based order created in 1945 was founded by countries who wanted to prevent human rights abuses. But those countries, headed by the U.S., are now helping fund Israel's assault on the Palestinian people. A shift in global power structure is on the horizon, and non-Western countries will have a bigger seat at the table. And the nerds have been busy today cranking out predictions. They've got one here that says there's a 39% chance that before 2024, the U.S. government will state that Iran likely helped Hamas plan the October 7th attack on Israel. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. And Marjorie Taylor Greene makes a move to impeach the U.S. Homeland Security Chief. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, BBC News, USA Today, The Hill, ABC News, and UPI. U.S. Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, the Republican from Georgia, has introduced a motion in the House of Representatives calling for Homeland Security, or DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, to be impeached for allegedly failing to secure the U.S.-Mexico border. Green has accused Mayorkas of breaking his oath to keep the U.S. secure, as the number of apprehensions at the U.S.-Mexico border reached more than 2 million in both 2022 and 2023, including over 200,000 in September this year alone. The privileged resolution must be taken to the House floor as a bill within two legislative days, or the motion could be tabled to avoid a formal vote. The motion could also be referred to a House committee, which would also require a majority vote. Green claimed that she had called the House Speaker Mike Johnson, the Republican from Louisiana, on Thursday morning, but the two didn't speak. 
When asked about the timing of the resolution, Green stated that her decision was influenced by the death of two of her district constituents during a car chase with suspected human smugglers in the state of Texas, according to police. Green's motion was supported by Representative Tony Gonzalez, the Republican from Texas, who stated the incident occurred in his district. DHS has in turn dismissed the accusation and accused Republicans in Congress of wasting months trying to score points. Adam, thanks for presenting those facts. The first spin is coming from the Washington Post. It's a Democratic narrative. Green's resolution calling for the immediate impeachment of Mayorkas is just one of many examples of the Mike Johnson-led House lacking any order. Republicans continue to practice chaos in the chamber rather than attempting to produce a plan that improves American society. The hope that came with a new speaker has quickly vanished as Republicans continue to play into bipartisan politics, looking to get one over on the other side. And I've got a Republican narrative to follow that up with, provided by National Review. Mayorkas has not simply failed to execute his duty of preventing illegal immigration, Rather, the DHS secretary is directly responsible for opening the U.S. border and welcoming an invasion. Mayorkas should have already been impeached for his behavior. And Congress's passivity on the matter is a stain on American politics. The House must move against Mayorkas immediately. I like how they kind of like rehashed uh, the I'm just a bill. Like Marjorie Taylor Greene is like a like they could redo it and like fray the head, fray the top of the bill and she'd just be all crazy. I'm just a bill. Oh yeah, and I'm screaming here on Capitol <laughs> Hill. It doesn't matter if they pass me as long as I get to scream. <laughs> Fentanyl lace letters have been sent to multiple U.S. election offices. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NPR Online News, The Guardian, and Fox News. Letters containing suspicious substances were sent to election offices in Georgia, Nevada, California, Oregon, and Washington state, four of which contained the deadly drug fentanyl. The incidents delayed ballot counting in some local elections, with the FBI and U.S. Postal Inspection Service investigating the matter. In Washington state, letters were received at election offices in the counties of Skagit, Spokane, Pierce, and King, which includes Seattle, two of which contained the drug. As this prompted an evacuation of ballot-counting workers on Tuesday, Democratic Secretary of State Steve Hobbs called the deliveries, quote, acts of terrorism to threaten our elections. Linda Farmer, the auditor for Pierce County, Washington, released an image of the letter her office received, which reportedly said, quote, end elections now and stop giving power to the right that they don't have. We are in charge now and there is no more need for them. It also contained an anti-fascist symbol, a pentagram, and a progress flag. Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, who lost his son to a fentanyl overdose about five years ago, said he was aware of an envelope traveling to Fulton County, adding that it had been tested and it did have fentanyl in it. While it was still in transit, he said, we have put and prepared our people here that could receive that mail on alert and given them the resources they need with Narcan. The Postal Service also intercepted two suspicious envelopes that were en route to election facilities in Los Angeles and Sacramento, while Lane County, Oregon, which includes the University of Oregon, was investigating a piece of mail that arrived at the local election office on Wednesday. The Lane County Election Office said no one who came in contact with it experienced any adverse health effects. This is just the latest in a series of threats against election officials since the 2020 U.S. elections. According to a Brennan Center for Justice survey in April, 
11% of election officials say they may leave before 2024, while 45% say they fear for the safety of their colleagues ahead of the next presidential election. All right, Eric, we're going to start off with a left narrative provided by NBC Bay Area. Ever since Donald Trump and his supporters tried to overturn the 2020 election results, the rate of threats against ballot counters has skyrocketed. Not only has this disrupted subsequent elections and caused workers to quit their jobs, but the cost of implementing security measures over the next 10 years will cost upwards of $600 million. Placing all the blame on an alleged left-wing perpetrator for this incident under investigation ignores the larger issue. Follow that up with a right narrative coming from the Western Journal. This news provides concrete proof that it's not right-wingers who are trying to undermine America's election integrity. These envelopes contain the symbols of left-wing movements like Antifa, which shows that left-wing domestic terrorism is also a threat. This was an unacceptable action that needs to be investigated and prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. Okay, I think the person who wrote that last right narrative is the one who did it. I believe so, too. It's, I mean, <laughs> that was like, well, it's not us because we, we wouldn't write something like that in an envelope. <laughs> it's like, that was like such like a, like a, like two brothers, like one setting up the other brother, you know, it wasn't me, dad. Right. I don't, I don't, I don't write, I don't write on the wall like that. That's not the way I write. That's the way Billy right? writes. <laughs> Deforestation in Brazil's Amazon falls to a five-year low. Here are the facts as agreed upon by New York Times, Reuters, The Brazilian Report, France 24, Folha de São Paulo, and Agencia Brasil. According to satellite data released by the National Institute of Space Research on Thursday, deforestation in the Brazilian Amazon rainforest fell by 22.3% between August of 2022 and July of 2023 the lowest since 2018. Some 9,000 square kilometers of the world's largest rainforest had been cleared in 12 months, compared to about 11,500 square kilometers destroyed the previous year. However, the rate of deforestation remains far from President Luis Ignacio Lula da Silva's pledge to reach zero deforestation by 2030. However, the data suggests the country likely reduced its greenhouse gas emissions by 7.5% in 2020, equivalent to 133 million metric tons of carbon dioxide emissions. Last month, the space agency reported the Brazilian Amazon witnessed more than 22,000 fires amid a severe drought in the region, a 15-year record high for October, despite the government's crackdown on environmental crimes. According to a monitoring system linked to the State University of Amazonas, smoke from wildfires has covered Amazonas' capital, Manaus, twice in October and at least five consecutive days in early November, resulting in very poor or extremely poor air quality levels. A separate analysis published by the MAP Biomass Watchdog has found a 15% reduction in the area occupied by natural forests in Brazil between 1985 and 2022, mainly due to advancement in agriculture and expansion of farming. Adam, thanks for those facts. Our first spin is a left narrative coming from Washington Post. Although Lula still has a steep way to pull off his balancing act with competing political and economic interests to tackle illegal deforestation and preserve the world's most important rainforest, this latest sign of success is inspiring. 
After four years of destruction under former President Jair Bolsonaro, the environmental agenda is finally moving forward. And there's a right narrative in an article provided by Breitbart. It's outrageous to compare how differently the Western establishment has treated Lula and Bolsonaro concerning the protection of the Amazon rainforest. Global environmentalists, who previously conducted a disinformation campaign against Bolsonaro, have now turned silent as their fellow Lula oversees smoke from wildfires smothering and harming people in that region. The nerds from Metaculus say there's a 26% chance that Brazil will reach net zero deforestation before 2031. An industrial robot kills a worker in South Korea. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Korea Herald, Fox News, BBC News, Insider, New York Post, and Korea Jungong Daily. A man has reportedly been crushed to death in South Korea after an industrial robot, which allegedly mistook him for a box, pushed his upper body against a conveyor belt. The victim, who sustained fatal head and chest injuries, has only been identified as a robotics company employee in his 40s, who was inspecting the robot's sensor at a vegetable packaging center at the time of the incident. The man had been testing the robot's sensor operations ahead of its test run scheduled for November 8th at the pepper sorting plant when it malfunctioned. According to local police, it wasn't an artificial intelligence-powered robot, but a, quote, machine that simply picks up boxes and puts them on pallets. According to the International Federation of Robotics, South Korea had 1,000 industrial robots per 10,000 employees in 2021, the highest robot density in the world. The machines were mainly in use at manufacturing plants. Accidents involving robotic systems have been increasing in the country. In May, a worker was killed at a rice mill after a packaging robot failed to distinguish him from the produce. Eric, thank you for the disturbing facts on that story. We've got a couple of spins here for it. We've got a narrative A provided by NBC. This tragic incident has been investigated to determine whether the robot was unsafe or had potential technical defects. Given the unsophisticated nature of the machine, the most likely explanation is human error. This story should not cause any kind of concern about the usage of robots in industry. Narrative B comes from Daily Mail. Even if this tragedy were caused by human error, it's reasonable that the incident has further intensified fears related to the dangers of industrial robots. As South Korea increasingly relies on industrial automation, it is important that dialogue around potential issues with industry transformation is entirely transparent and workers feel safe and informed moving forward. And the nerds have another opinion. They think that there's a 50% chance that a humanoid robot will be created that the general public judges as indistinguishable from humans in February 2058, according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. Why in February? For Valentine's. Of course, it's going to come out with a Valentine's, a girlfriend or boyfriend robot for Valentine's. In February 2058, ladies and gentlemen, mark your calendars. It's going to be there. You might want to start saving up your money now for it. Surgeons have performed the world's first eye transplant. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, CBS, Associated Press, NBC, CNN, and USA Today. A team of surgeons at NYU Langen Health has successfully performed the first-ever whole eye transplant. Their patient was a 46-year-old military veteran based in Arkansas who lost half of his face in a high-voltage electrical accident. Aaron James, a utility line worker, lost his nose, front teeth, 
left eye, lips, left cheek, dominant left hand, and 20% of his tongue when his face accidentally touched a 72,000-volt live wire in June of 2021. On Thursday, the surgeons announced that James is recovering well following the whole eye transplant, which included the eyeball, its blood supply, and the optic nerve that connects it to the brain. More than 140 surgeons transplanted an entire left eye and part of a donor's face to James in a surgery that lasted nearly 21 hours last May. While he can't yet see out of his new eye, James hopes the vision will eventually come as surgeons claim that the eye is showing remarkable signs of health. However, Dr. Eduardo Rodriguez, who led the unprecedented surgery, insists that the process is fraught with risk and says he can't predict, quote, the exact timeline or longevity of face transplants. Adam, thanks for the facts of that story. We begin our round of spins with Narrative A, and it's coming from Scientific American. The first ever whole eye transplant is an undoubted success and harbinger of great developments in transplant medicine. The fact that James' body accepted the transplant and that he is experiencing various senses in his face shows how much progress has already been made. The NYU surgeons have made a tremendous breakthrough that could soon allow doctors to develop a process to restore eyesight. And we're going to continue the spin with the narrative B provided by the New York Post. While this feat should be celebrated, it shouldn't be treated as a revolutionary breakthrough, as an eye transplant that fully restores vision is still a distant prospect. While the massive risks associated with such a procedure are yet to be reduced, James should be celebrated for his willingness to undergo experimental surgery. However, his transplant was more of a moderate step for science than a breakthrough. This is a story that deserves a nerd narrative, and we have one coming from Metaculous Prediction Community. They say there's a 50% chance that the first human head transplant will not occur before September 2047. I almost had to have an eye transplant recently. No, you did not. I did. I swear. I swear. I, I called into work, and I said, there's something wrong with my eye. I can't see myself coming into work today. You know... <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Saturday, November 11th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers, and we figure out which ones are about the same stories. Then for each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all the articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. Find out more at Verity.news and download the Verity app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on the Verity Podcast. Podcast.